1: continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Tribune Audio Network. And there was a cookie on sale for $4.20. That's mm, an expensive four, four cookie. 20.
2: Interesting. Do well, you think
1: that's a very for specific one number? You think that's on purpose?
2: If you're going to spend $4.20 on a cookie, you're kind of doing it because it just sounds cool.
0: From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record.
2: We're investigative reporters breaking down the big stories, what it took to get them, taking you behind the scenes. This is the stuff we couldn't tell you on TV.
1: On today's episode, in the hospital and then in jail, the complicated investigation that has police rethinking how they treat people with medical conditions. And the hemp revival,
0: the legal hurdles of producing CBD and the gray area for growers,
1: sellers, and consumers like you. Hello, I'm Jenna Sachs, and I'm here with Amanda St. Hilaire. Hello. And Brian Polson.
2: Hi. Well, a man says police beat him while he was having a seizure then charged him with assaulting an officer.
1: Police say the officer was justified making
2: a split-second decision to protect himself. So Amanda dug into this story, and now advocates are pushing for reform in how the criminal justice system treats people who have medical conditions.
0: So this story starts on October 6, 2016. Tyron Pinkins woke up in the hospital with his eyes swollen shut He says he has no memory of what put him there, but the doctor told him he had a seizure. Pinkins was later released into police custody and charged with battery to a law enforcement officer, attempting to disarm a peace officer, resisting an officer, and disorderly
1: conduct. So he has no memory of any of this and then ends up in jail? That's what he tells us. And
0: not only ending up in jail, he was there for six months. That's how long it took him to post bail, and then it took two years for the case to be dropped. Pinkin says he still didn't really have a clear picture of what happened that night, but then he got a hold of the Racine police dash
2: cam footage. So, if I recall correctly, he comes to us with this and he has video of the incident, but how from there did you piece together? What happened that night?
0: So we used a combination of the dash cam footage, other public records to vet what he was saying, hospital records, and court records. We found out that at the time Racine police officer Joshua Diedrich was on duty that night, and someone flagged him down saying a man was laying on the grass. That man was Tyron Pinkins. Diedrich called the situation in saying Pinkins was shaking, looked like he was having a seizure. Eventually, Pinkins opened his eyes, and the dash cam footage shows him standing up and appearing to stumble. So, what did Officer Dietrich do at that point? He kept asking Pinkins questions like, Are you all right? But Pinkins wasn't responding. And you can hear the officer asking a witness at the scene questions like, Does he speak? And what's going on with him? Diedrich asked Pinkins to sit down. Pinkins did not do that. He kept stumbling around. And Diedrich later testified that Pinkins looked like he was staring right through him. So at that point, Pinkins is stumbling toward the intersection. Diedrich tries to grab him. And Pinkins falls to the ground. And that's when you see the struggle. The struggle. A man runs out, helps Officer Diedrich restrain Pinkins, and more police backup arrives. Diedrich goes to the hospital with a few cuts, and Pinkins goes to the hospital as well, but his injuries look a lot more
2: serious. The vomit was probably from the seizure. The blood was probably from the police response.
0: That's the voice of Art Taggart. He's worked with the Epilepsy Foundation for decades to advocate for people who have seizures.
2: You know, this is hard here because we're on a podcast, so you can't see this video, but the video really demonstrates kind of the situation and what was going on when police arrived. What did Art's expertise reveal about his behavior when he looks at that video?
0: So, Art showed us the research that says Pinkin's behavior in the dash cam footage is actually not unusual for someone who's just had a seizure because the brain takes time to recover. It's referred to as the post-ictal phase. So that's why Art Taggart is pushing for police, district attorneys, and others involved in the criminal justice system to have training to recognize those signs someone is actively having a seizure or has just had a seizure so they can then
1: adjust their responses. So what's the source of this misunderstanding? What are signs and symptoms they can look for to just? Distinguish if someone is being um, non-cooperative or whether they're having a seizure? It's really difficult to tell, but there
0: are a few key indicators. So, And we are posting um, this dash cam footage on our website as well, along with the story, so you can watch and you can see. But Art Tagger walked us through. Um, if someone is unable to respond, if they're stumbling, th- there will be that vacant look in their eyes, Sometimes the person might be repeating a phrase over and over. And if you try to restrain the person, it is very likely, and studies have shown, they can become combative. They don't know what's happening, what's going on. It can be very confusing for that person. And eventually, when the brain fully recovers, that person will likely have no memory of what happened during that period of time. So the way Art Taggart described it was, um, you know, it's like there's still tape running through the recording, but no one's pressing record.
2: You talk about uh, training, helping officers to recognize these kinds of things. But right off the bat, you know, if you're an officer and you're wondering, is this person I'm dealing with being combative or difficult, or are they dealing with a medical condition? It seems like the first clue would be, when you're called by someone who says, hey, this guy's having a medical condition. And in this case, the officer had that information right up front. Hey, that guy's having a seizure. So you would think, I guess, I'm, as an outsider here, with the proper training, they should know that means I have to approach this a little bit differently?
0: Sure, and it depends on whether you've had that training. So this Racine police officer and Racine police to date have not had that training. So Art Taggart tells us police who have had that training know hey, I don't restrain this person. I'm just going to kind of turn their shoulders if I want them to veer in a different direction because they'll keep walking. Uh, There are certain solutions like that that sound reasonable when you hear them, but you may not know in the situation if you haven't been training. I think sometimes, too, when we think of seizures, we think of only convulsions on the ground, which in this case was happening. But sometimes someone can be having a seizure And you're not going to see that shaking. You're not going to see what we think of as that stereotypical sign. My college roommate had seizures, and you would be talking to her, and suddenly she would kind of stop and stare. She might say a few things that didn't really make sense, and then later she would have no memory of that interaction, even though she seemed a little off but completely lucid. So because the symptoms manifest themselves in different ways in different people, That's where it can be difficult. And sometimes because the person's standing up and they appear to be conscious, you think, okay, the seizure's over or they should be back to normal. And when you get that training and when you go through the research, that's when you really realize it, it takes a while to recover from that kind of event that's happening to your brain.
1: I'm really interested in what Racine Police had to say about everything because police officers have to have a wealth of knowledge on a lot of different things. And it's it's hard to, I assume, have expertise in every single area. Did they say anything like that when you spoke to them? Yeah, I'm really glad they spoke with us for this story. I didn't really know how
0: they were going to react Police officers are under a lot of scrutiny right now, and there can be some sensitivity to that. So when Racine police spoke to us, and um, Officer Diedrich is no longer a police officer, he left the department in good standing. Um, So not
2: because of this incident. Not because of this
0: incident. He left uh, to pursue a job outside of law enforcement after this was over. But Racine Police said that in this case, they're they're trained for a lot of different things in a lot of different ways. And at the end of the interview was when the spokesperson told a story that really captured the difficulty of this situation. And he was talking about how in their training, they're taught that that vacant look.
2: That thousand-yard stare. Thousand-yard stare
0: is a sign and often is a very good indicator that someone is about to be combative. It's part of their training. So he said the last time someone gave him that thousand-yard stare, he was sitting in a squad car, and the person pulled out a gun and shot at him. And you could see kind of the emotion in his face as he was reliving that moment. And so you realize, okay, we're looking at video in hindsight, and we can break down, you could have done this, you could have done that, and those exercises are helpful because there always should be evaluations. We're seeing police said they do want to do seizure training now. And, you know, there's always something that could be improved with the response. But in that split second, how are you going to react? And that will that reaction determine whether you get to go home that night? On the other hand, if you are reacting in a way that is going to hurt someone who's having a medical condition, that's not their fault either. So, should someone have to worry about potentially being shot or arrested or having this major life interruption happen because of a medical condition that they can't control? So, that's it, there was some really interesting gray area in this story, and that's why I liked it so much because you're exploring things where, okay, we don't have someone who is necessarily a hero or a villain.
2: Well, I, I, one thing I'm wondering about is, is how this plays into it, and maybe. It's easy in a perfect world to suggest that every police interaction with a civilian should be one where the past means nothing. But, In addition to the medical condition, in addition to the seizures, Mr. Pinkins also has his own uh, fairly negative history with law enforcement. He's had some problems in his own past. Does that come into play here? Does the officer in this case even know going in who he's dealing with?
0: Right. So in this case, the officer said he did not know Tyron Pinkins going into this. Pinkins was up front with us about his his criminal past. He was a convicted felon. He had been uh, charged and convicted of battery. He had had some additional run-ins with police. At the time that this incident took place, he was homeless, which was part of the reason he wasn't on any seizure medication. Um, But Pinkins has told us that since then, he's kind of turned his life around. And at that moment, he was trying to turn his life around. But you do wonder how that factors
2: into something.
0: Now, well, when, I also wonder
2: from an officer's standpoint, how do you sort of separate the two? Because on the one hand, this is someone with a past that's shown a propensity to be violent and maybe even be resistive to law enforcement. On the other hand, he's clearly been – the officer's told, this guy's having a seizure. Right. How do you know where what's what or is there a little of both going on?
0: And in this case, the, the officer – later testified that he did not know that the the criminal history. So at that point, he's just another person who has been encountered on the street. Now, when going back and writing up the charging documents, that's when police, that's when the district attorney's office would see that prior criminal behavior. And that was the, the weird thing with this. Um, and the big question we had that no one really seemed to be able to answer was, okay, the doctor said, and we have the medical paperwork that says yeah it looks like this guy had a seizure the police officer said it looked like this guy was having a seizure pinkin says he's had seizures before and the witness at the scene said he was having a seizure so why was he charged i you know is
2: that where the past maybe comes into play when evaluating right. whether or not to charge
0: and the district attorney's office uh, would not return our calls But the the police say, look, we write up the documents. We can't really control what happens after that. So I thought it was an interesting decision, and I would have liked to know more about what went into their decision to really push that case. And then right before it went to trial was when the charges were dropped, and it was on the prosecution's motion to dismiss the charges. Pinkin says through the whole way he was – being strongly encouraged to plead down, he said no because he did, in his view, he didn't do anything wrong and he didn't really know what happened. And it wasn't until after those charges were dropped that he saw the video.
1: Do you know why they dropped the charges? Did you get any official statement? They, I,
0: I really wish they would have talked to me because I think that would have helped shed some light on the situation. I did notice that the charges were dropped, it was the week it was going to trial. So sometimes that will happen when. Along the way, okay, maybe this person will plead down, they'll plead down, and suddenly that doesn't happen, Um, and then it's about to go to trial, and at that point, it's dismissed. But when we were speaking to seizure advocates like Art Taggart, he said that's actually pretty common. So he has had letters from neurologists, people who have had seizures and been charged with crimes, and testimony from people in the medical profession, and the charges still go through. Because in, in the mind of the people pressing the charges, hey, you did some damage or you did assault an officer or, you know, it, it looks like you were driving under the influence. So once those charges are filed, it's really hard to get them dropped even if you have medical testimony
2: to well, back it up. Well, and who up. knows? I mean, it, c- can we really have a blanket sort of policy that says because you had a seizure, you're absolved of all wrongdoing? There have to be, I'm sure, evaluations of each case and what are the circumstances There
0: are the the interesting legal aspect of all of this is intent, right? So in order to file charges, especially when it comes to assaulting an officer, you need to show that they intended to do this. So you would think if they're having a seizure that takes away that intent because you're not in control of your body, you you don't necessarily know what happened in that point, especially depending on the magnitude of the seizure that you're talking about. Uh, And in this case, we asked police directly about that. You know, you, you say in the documents, oh, well, he knew this guy was an officer because of his uniform, but we've heard from medical professionals who say this guy definitely would have had no idea that he was dealing with a police officer. But police say that's up to the district attorney's office, and that's where um, sometimes that disconnect can happen.
2: The, The big thing I want to hear, bigger picture beyond Mr. Pinkins, is you talk about this need for training. Is this one of those cases where if officers have this kind of specific training and they approach a situation like this, they are likely to be able to handle it better?
0: That's what advocates for seizure patients say. So they've pointed to other incidents that have happened in Wisconsin. Um, we We were given dash cam footage of a man who was pulled over for OWI after he had a seizure. He ended up crashing into a house and then continued to drive away. And who had no, I mean, he couldn't even give his name correctly in the dash cam footage. And you can see police becoming very, very frustrated. And if you haven't been trained in that, You, this guy seems like he's drunk. It's the same thing with uh, there was a. Did he turn out to
2: have no alcohol in his system in that case? Well,
0: and in that case, because he wasn't being responsive to police, they took that as him refusing the blood test. So they never tested his blood. Okay. So that took a long time. But it was ultimately determined
2: this was a seizure. It was ultimately
0: determined this was a seizure. Um, Several years ago in the Madison area, there was a man who died. While he was being restrained by police while he was having a seizure mm. um, because he was face down, his hands were behind him, he got sick, um, and and he passed away in police custody. So after that, police went through a lot of seizure training and were taught, okay, you don't restrain the person in that situation. Here are some alternatives you can go through. But again, what happens when that training overlaps? So you're taught that that vacant look can mean someone might be about to shoot you, but you're also taught that the vacant look could mean someone's having a seizure. And in that second, you're deciding how that person's going to respond, and whatever decision you make could be the difference between life and death for you or life and death for that other person. And that's a lot to walk around
2: with. Well, and that is a lot. When you consider that Mr. Pink could survived, but in some of these cases, there's no chance to file charges or dismiss charges because it could be a life or death decision. A really important story. And, and thank you for sharing so much on that. Remember, if you think you have a potential story, uh, something you'd like to hear more about that we've worked on, send us an email, the investigators at foxxnow.com. Industrial hemp is making a huge comeback in Wisconsin.
0: Last year was the first time in 70 years that farmers could grow it legally in the state. And this year, more than 1,400 people have applied for a grower's license. So, Jenna, this is really
1: leading to a business trend. It really is. Specialty shops are popping up across our area where you can buy everything from CBD-infused oils to dog treats, gummy bears, coffee beans, and so on.
2: It seems like there's stuff everywhere you go, but this has bringing hemp back has come with some hurdles, right?
1: It has. Farmers were getting mixed messages from regulators and law enforcement officials about what was legal and what was not, and it was creating a lot of confusion. So, Jenna, you've been following this story since
0: industrial hemp became legal again. And people have had a lot to say about this.
1: Yeah, that's an understatement. In fact, I spoke with one woman who said CBD um, has helped her overcome a narcotics addiction after a kidney transplant, and now helps her to manage her chronic pain. Three months now, no narcotics at all, just the CBD. I do the oil and I vape.
0: And I'm taking my son off of his ADHD medication to put him on CBD
2: as well. Okay, so this woman is clearly on board with CBD, but is there any medical research to back up what she's saying?
1: Uh, Interestingly, no, there is no major research supporting claims about CBD health benefits. Uh, Many people swear by it, saying it helps them with stress, pain, or focus. Um, There is an exception. It has been approved by the FDA as an anti-seizure drug, but most claims about CBD are unproven and quality control standards just don't exist right now. But that said, there's no question CBD is very popular, becoming more popular, and farmers see this as an opportunity to really cash in. So
0: when we have this discussion, there's a lot of terminology that gets thrown around. What is hemp versus marijuana? We talk about
1: CBD, THC. How do we distinguish between all these terms? Okay, so hemp and the marijuana plant are going to look identical, but the difference is that hemp has 0.3% THC or less. THC is the psychoactive component that gives people a high when they take marijuana. Um, So it looks the same under a microscope, it'll look the same, um, but... The THC level is much lower, and that's what makes hemp. Um, Hemp can be used for all sorts of things. In the olden days, it was used a lot for rope and twine and its fibers. These days, it's really popular as an oil, a CBD oil. Uh, CBD is what's extracted from the plant. People will put it in salves, in lotions, they'll put it in cookies, um, dog biscuits. It's most popular as an oil that people will drop under their tongue with a dropper, you know, one or two drops. um, And they say that's what helps with, you know, the pain management. Um, or the stress. So that's probably what's most popular is using it as an oil. So
0: you're not going to get high off of CBD?
1: No, you're not. I mean, it's the, the levels of THC are just way too low. Um, the reason that hemp disappeared years ago was partly because of the crackdown on illegal drugs and the fact that they had trouble distinguishing between what was hemp and what was THC. Um, so it disappeared for a long time, but now it's coming back um, with some new laws that have been passed.
2: Well, And, and I want to clarify, because there's a lot of talk, obviously a lot of attention nationally, on uh, states that are legalizing either medicinal marijuana or legalizing recreational marijuana. And there were the referendums here recently in Wisconsin to legalize marijuana, which is entirely different from hemp, even though they sort of derive from the same plant um, or similar plants, I guess. I don't know my well, it's, terminology. It's the same might even, plant, okay. just different so, components. So when you talk about hemp being legalized here, this is entirely different from the discussions over marijuana being legalized.
1: Right. The people, though, that tend to support... Marijuana legalization tend to support hemp as well. The two kind of go hand in hand. But no, Wisconsin has not legalized the use of marijuana um, for you know uh, recreational use. But uh, in 2017, Governor Walker allowed farmers to start growing hemp again as part of a pilot program that's overseen by either a university or a state agriculture program. Um, so a, a couple hundred farmers signed up for this first year, and what they found was... They were excited to try this new um, this new crop. They were hoping it would become a cash prop crop for them, but they didn't know um, how to grow it. You know how to get the most CBD out of it while not going over the THC levels that they were required to stay below. Um, but they also didn't know where to get their seed um, legally, where to sell it. And they were getting conflicting messages about whether they could do those things legally, even they, were, even though they were told, you can go out and grow this now. So did that ever get resolved, the question about what was legal, what wasn't? Yeah, a lot has been resolved over the last year. At the time of our first story, um, farmers were being told, you know, you can't get your seed because it can't be transported across state lines. Um, there were limitations that way. Um, but at the same time, time, um, the, you know, they, they wanted to grow it and there were no sources of the seed here in the state that they could use. Now, if you go to the, the state's website, you'll find a list of places where you can buy seed. So that issue has been, it looks like taken care of, but it, it was very confusing. And that's just one example of ways this was confusing.
0: Well, and at one point, the at the time, Attorney General Brad Schimmel came out and said it was illegal to possess or sell CBD. So what happened? How did that affect everything? Well, that
1: was really confusing for the farmers because they had been told they could grow it and then start selling it. I mean, the whole point of growing it is so you can right. sell and it, right? you obviously possessing it if you're growing it. Exactly. So they were thinking, well, how am I supposed to distribute this and make any money off of it if the attorney general is saying that it's illegal? And he was getting that information also from a lot of uh, the FBI, for example, or other law enforcement agencies in the country that still consider this Um, to be illegal. But here under the pilot program, farmers were arguing, I have a right to do this. So even though he came up up with that order and that memo, a lot of places kept selling it saying, you know, bring it on. I think I'm completely able to sell this. And then the AG reversed course at a later date and said, okay, you know, you can
2: possess it and you can distribute it. So hemp is now an agricultural product in Wisconsin, but it's, it's obviously unusual in that, you know, if you grow corn or soybeans or something like that, you don't have to worry that, well, I hope my corn's starch level doesn't top something. And so as they're growing this, how do they make sure that they're growing crops that don't exceed 0.3% THC? Is there some way to manage that?
1: Well, there is constant testing that goes on. So the state is going to come out and test your crop when they know that you're growing it. And if you go above 0.3% More than once, you have to destroy your crop. So, people don't want to go above that. So, they'll enlist labs. We have a lab here in Milwaukee that tests uh, crops to see what the THC content is. But, you know, if you haven't grown something before, it's this sweet spot you have to get to where you're getting as much oil as possible, but you're not, you know, growing an illegal drug. So, they're having to do a lot of testing. um, And that's just part of the process. And this first season for a lot of people was just about learning how how am i going to do this and how am i going to do it successfully and maybe they didn't make a lot of money from this first season but obviously with all these shops that are popping up everywhere people want to get on board and that's why we're seeing so many more people apply for these licenses this second season what do those specialty shops look like how do they operate You know, it's interesting because some of them are complete like little holes in the wall. You walk in and they're dark and they've got a few shelves and um, they've got oils lined up and some of them are very bright um, and they feel very hip. You uh, you can see where you can get the specialty coffee beans and the tea bags and the dog treats. Um, So there's lots of different vibes um, going into these different places, but everybody's really excited about selling CBD and selling these hemp products.
2: Is it sort of a holistic type of thing if there's no research saying that these benefits are these health benefits are there. I mean, what is the benefit in going to buy CBD cookies if there's no research that says that it's necessarily going to help you with anything? Or is it just the belief among people who who use CBD oils and other things that it's going to help me with certain ailments?
1: It's very much a word of mouth thing. And people... They swear by it and they tell their friends and more people will try it. It's it's amazing how many people have gotten on board this train without there being research to support their claims. We don't know how CBD is going to interact with other medications in your body. Let's say you're taking some other pills. You don't know what the consequences could be of putting CBD in there um, along with other meds. So there's a lot of things that are unknown, like a lot of other supplements though. you know, If you go to a, sure. a natural food store, there's all sorts of supplements on the shelves and it's the same. Thing.
2: I do. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, w-
1: I was going to say
0: you would think that now with it becoming legal in more places, the hemp products, that there would be more research, but of course, research takes time to cultivate, to publish, to vet. So in the next Five, ten years, I'd imagine what we're saying right now about the research could change.
1: Whether it will prove or disprove the effects, mm-hmm. that's another question. Right. And th- you're right. There is research underway right now. Um, but some companies are making claims that the FDA is warning them not to do. You know, claims about how it will uh, help with certain specific medical issues, like Alzheimer's, for example. Um, FDA has sent out a letter to some companies saying, you have to stop that advertising right now because you can't back up those claims you're making. Um, about what your product will do for people with serious medical conditions.
2: I do wonder if there's not an element of this too. As you said, many of the people who support legalizing marijuana also are really into CBD. And if there's not just a sense, and I'm just wondering this aloud, but someone who goes to, I'm guessing CBD cookies aren't the same price as a regular chocolate chip cookie or whatever it might be. Are they people who this is just a chance to have something that's the next step toward edible marijuana, and they just want to be part of the game. I mean, is there some that just, hey, I support this. This is the closest I can get right now, or whether it's helping me or effect, not. effect,
0: where it's like, I believe yeah. this is helping me to the point where I'm noticing physical
1: results. You know, I think a lot of it is speculation, but when you talk to people who consume it regularly. You know, they say that it helps them. And, you know, maybe there is some interest in it because they think it might be along the lines of marijuana. But I mean, I'm sure there's all sorts of reasons people decide to try it, maybe because it's the hip thing. You know, this
2: isn't the kind of thing where if, well, if I eat enough CBD cookies, I'll get high. I mean, that's not that's not how this works, right?
1: No, you'd have to eat a lot of a lot of cookies, which interestingly, I don't know if our our producers noticed this, but we went out to some stores recently to look at some products, and there was a cookie on sale for $4.20. That's an Ooh. expensive four, 4 cookie.
2: twenty. Interesting. Well, that's, Do you think that's a very for one specific cookie?
1: number? Do you think that's on purpose? Very but for one specific. one cookie it was $4.20? One cookie and was $4.20. And that's what I'm 20. saying, where you've,
2: you, if you're going to spend $4.20 on a cookie, you're kind of doing it because it just sounds cool.
1: Right. I mean, you could buy a bag of four gummies for like $10. So, for, <laughs> as like, we sit down and break gummy down the yeah. most cost-effective, really, way oh yeah, they really Okay, popular. So, so
2: then, then you're either really believing that this is helping you, or it or does, you just, yeah, or it does, mm-hmm. right? But I, I'm saying so you, you either believe it is for a purpose beyond the flavor of the gummy. I don't think bucks.
1: you're take, you're buying it for the for the for the taste. I think you're buying it because you think it's going to calm you down maybe before you go to bed. Maybe you have a lot of stress in your life and you think this is going to help. Maybe you have some back pain and you want to try anything. Um, But people are really into holistic holistic medications right now. And
2: if it works, I mean, I'd much rather have some CBD-infused gummies than you know opioids or something where there's so many other side effects and drawbacks to addiction and things like that. I mean, do we know – that's, I guess, a question. Do we know anything about is CBD in any way addictive?
0: Well, and that's been a big Hmm. argument in favor of – Legalization is that it's supposedly going to be less harmful than an opioid prescription.
1: Although, interestingly, I did read some reports that said people have been known to fail drug tests after taking CBD. So, another interesting component there. Um, Because it has
2: that small level of THC?
1: Maybe. Yeah. So, that's something to consider. But I think obviously we're going to hear a lot more about it in the coming years. We'll see if it's a fad or not. But obviously, for farmers in Wisconsin, it's an opportunity to really make some money.
2: It feels like in our lifetimes, this is like the Wild West of just figuring all of this out, whether it's marijuana, hemp, uh, the the industrial applications, medicinal purposes. I mean, we're, we're... We're going to look back, I think, a generation or two from now and go, wow, we didn't know anything back then. I think we're going to say that about a lot of things. That's probably true.
1: (laughs) Well, it's fascinating, and it's probably not the last report we're going to do on CBD and hemp. So um, stick with us, and we'll have some more for you. But if you've got a consumer investigation or a complaint, you can always fill out a form on our website, fox6now.com, and we'd be happy to look into it. And that's the dinner bell, which means it's time for our dinner party questions. This is
0: a weekly segment where we answer questions we often get asked at parties or different events.
2: So here's the catch. We have no idea what the question is. There are, well, we're down to two envelopes, so we need your ideas. Send us some dinner party questions. But we've got two more from our first batch here, and uh, we're going to pick one at random, and we'll find out. We don't know what it's going to say yet. So whose turn is it?
0: Is it mine? I think it is. Yeah, go for it. Okay. I don't think anything will explode if we go out of order for opening (laughs) the dinner party question one week. How did you get into news? How much time do we have?
2: <laughs> well, I'll be glad because I, I think I've, I've sat back and let you guys go the last few times so that I could think things through. Fire but, away, Brian. Uh, it's interesting. I've I've been asked to do a lot of you know as when as reporters were asked to do career days, you know speeches and things like that, or, or visit schools. And, and kids often want to ask, well, how did you get into this? And I always feel funny telling them because I didn't have a real direct road into news. In fact, when I was in high school, I was like a math and science nerd. And I always thought I, am I was going zero
0: percent surprised I know. by this. I
2: always thought I'd go into an engineering field or something like my my brother, my father, and uh, but but what I always loved to do was uh, I would watch St. Louis Cardinals baseball. I'm sorry, Brewers fans. I'm from St. Louis, and I would turn down the television and I would do the play by play, and I just I, I wanted to be a sports play by play announcer. In my office, there is a license plate that says NX-Buck, which actually was supposed to mean that I I wanted to be the next Jack Buck, longtime broadcaster of the St. Louis Cardinals, father of Joe Buck, um, who has done sports of all kinds on Fox. Um, And so I wanted to get into broadcasting thinking I was going to be this— famous play-by-play announcer and I I got a job in radio in a small town making $12,000 a year and after a few years of that decided, wow, this was a terrible choice. Um, (laughs) I loved radio but it just wasn't a place I was going to make a living in in small town America. It was a great job in terms of what I was doing. It wasn't going to make me a living and I went back to school uh, at the University of Missouri and got into news and did some stuff on television and because I'd been on the radio part of our daily job was in addition to the sports and the other things and being a country music DJ. Yes, I did that. (laughs) um, We had to cover the news. And I became familiar with the players at the state capitol and things like that. And I I got into school at Mizzou and realized, wait, I know who all these people are and I have a head start. And I started to actually crave the news more than anything else and found out, hey, I think I have a knack for this. And next thing you know, I was in the news business. And uh, by 2004, I was here in Milwaukee. And Been here now for 15 years, which is hard to believe.
1: What about you, Amanda?
0: My parents joke that I did my first investigative report when I was 15 years old. And they said, We're going to move our family from New Hampshire to Pennsylvania. And I immediately did a whole bunch of research found out that Three Mile Island was right near where we were going to be moving and that they had had, you know, an issue you might have heard about back in the 70s and presented my findings to them about why it was unsafe and irresponsible parenting for them to move us, (laughs) lined up arrangements to live with a friend and her parents to finish out high school. My parents said, great job, honey. We love the initiative you still have to move with us. Our investigations um,
2: don't always get results.
0: It, <laughs> they do not. That, one, that <laughs> one did not get the result I was hoping for, but it got the result I needed because that move ended up being great. Um, no, when I was a teenager, I signed myself up. There was a, an ad in our local newspaper for a sports journalism class. I know nothing about sports. I have no interest in sports, but I like to write, and that was really what it was advertising. Um, so I showed up. And it was a class for adults, so I was the youngest one there by a solid 20 years at least. (laughs) And my mom asked if I wanted to leave. I said no. I, I fell in love with the idea of telling people stories and finding information that people needed. And I really, from the start, liked the local element of news and journalism because it was really clear to me that that's the stuff that affects people the most. And when you're reporting on that and when you're digging into that, that's where you can really inspire change that directly affects people. So I knew at a really young age that I wanted to do specifically broadcast news. So for, for me, it was something I figured out pretty early on.
2: Jenna, how about you? Did you know you were going to be in news at an early age?
1: Uh, no. Um, you know, I think a lot of people in this business grow up wanting to be in TV news you know, their whole childhood, they've got the microphone, they're pretending to be a reporter, and that wasn't me. Um, I didn't know anybody in TV news, so it just never occurred to me. Um, Once you're in the business, you know everybody. It's very small. Um, But, you know, I I was a journalism major in college because I knew that I liked to write, but I also knew that I had a short attention span. And journalism (laughs) is great for people who like to write and can't concentrate on anything for very long. Um, And then I started signing up for internships in college, and I got one at a TV station, WCCO in Minneapolis. I spent the summer there. Good
2: TV station.
1: Really good TV station. I liked it. I remember looking around at all those reporters in the room and being like, wow, do you think I could ever be like that? Just because I didn't know anyone who had done it, and it seemed so far-fetched. And so I thought to myself, well, if I want to do this, I have to be as prepared as possible. So I got another TV internship in Madison where I went to school, and that led to another TV internship, which was an on-air internship. It was this really rare opportunity where they took one student... Um, per year who worked full-time at a TV station while also taking classes at UW Madison and by the end of it you have a tape that's edited by professional photographers of actual on-air experience um, that's incredible it's really it gives you a real leg up on everybody else um, so by the time I graduated it was the thing I was most qualified to do <laughs> but you know I never I never got into this because I wanted to be on TV it was just I like journalism and this fit well for me. And I liked mixing, you know, the, the interviews with, um, with the, with the writing and the natural sound. And I, I thought it was, it was fun. So I just went from there.
2: Something I wonder with you is were you, when you were younger, cause I haven't, kn- I have only mm-hmm. known you since you've been here at Fox six news, were you a shy person and I ask that because when you get into this business and you've mm-hmm. got to be comfortable in front of a camera, you've got to be comfortable introducing yourself to all kinds of different people. And and I always find it interesting there, you would think that the only people attracted to this business would be people who are super outgoing. And I actually found that's not necessarily the case.
1: I, you know, it depends on who I was with. I think in a lot of situations, I was definitely shy as a kid, but in other situations, I wasn't. Um, but, you know, I'm not... Attention-seeking. Uh, you know, I, I'm very comfortable sitting back and letting other people talk. My parents listened to this podcast and thought it was interesting listening to me talk for a long period of time <laughs> because usually at home everybody else talks. I just sit back and listen, and I'm fine with that. You know, I don't inject my opinion unless people usually ask. But it's and
2: here we want you to just give us your opinion I know. constantly. You but
1: know, that's probably a good skill as a journalist because when
0: you're able to listen, that's when you pick up on the stuff that. The, uh, the egos in the room, can, and uh, trust me, we're in TV news, we all have a little bit of an ego at, at some point at least, but mm-hmm. you can pick up on those things that maybe someone else might ignore.
2: Producer I'd Pete like has to a think so. I'm a- just kidding. I I'm sorry, producer. You have no ego at all. Uh, you know <laughs> yeah. what, I, what I think would be a great dinner party question, and I know we don't have time for it now, but this, we're gonna, well, this is going to go in one of the envelopes. It should be just the opposite of this. If you weren't a broadcast journalist, what do you think you would have done?
1: That's a good that's, one. That's we'll a, remember for the that
2: one. Future podcast, right? Now, if you have, we do need to fill these envelopes with more ideas. So if you have ideas for dinner party questions, something you want to know about us, about our jobs, about anything, send them our way. The investigators at nowcom is the email. The investigators at nowcom
1: Thanks for listening to Open Record.
2: We would like to quickly thank the people behind the scenes helping make this happen, producer Pete, who does not have an ego, and our editor Dave Machuda, as well as our amazing executive producer, Leanne Watson.
0: If you want more Open Record, you can just head to our website, fox6now.com. Tribune Audio Network.